Welcome to Main Street Politics. My name is Daniel Bonham. Cliff Bentz is today. I test out Wikipedia for their accuracy. This is how I do background information. And this page seems to have a lot of key pertinent stuff. So born in Salem. So for you serving here, I mean, you're, is this like coming home? Uh, no. <laughs> <You know. laughs> born in Salem, uh, but raised in Eastern Oregon. Graduated <laughs> from Regis High School in Staten. Yeah. 12 miles out. 12 miles out. So when did you move to the east part of the state? So what happened was my dad is from just outside of town here in Sublimity, adjacent to Staten. And then he went to World War II. Then he ended up deciding he wanted to get into the cattle business. So he started to work his way across Oregon. And he ended up working on the White Horse Ranch now near McDermott. And that was my granddad's ranch. So I met my mom and they got married. They moved back to a small farm that he and my uncle had purchased outside of town here about 20 miles because he couldn't get along with my granddad. Hmm. So it was a, a back and forth sort of a deal where we would drive to the ranch, live for a year, and then drive back here, live on the farm for a year. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was a challenge for little kids. When you and I first met, I don't know, you might not remember this, but it was a big night for me. I was at the uh, Wasco County Republican Central Committee meeting to discuss with them my potential throwing in the hat for the John Huffman replacement job. And you were there that very night to declare your interest in Senator Ferrioli's seat in the Senate as he was moving on as well. And as we sat and visited, I looked down at my hands and having been working on chimney pipe all day, you know, I still had some soot under my hands and I looked over at yours and you showed me you were wearing some band-aids and some scars because you had been putting up fence that day. And I, one of the things is we've talked about so far in this podcast and our this now being our second podcast. And the first one, talking to Mike McLean and trying to reiterate to folks that we're everyday people that do have jobs, that still do chores back home. So tell me a little bit, though, about that life that you're living out on the ranch. Let me describe the difference between ranches. So... Uh, the, the ranch we were raised on down near uh, Nevada was a desert operation. A couple thousand head of cows and about half a million acres on which they ran. Wow. We then moved up to a different bunch of branches outside of Burns, about 50 miles. And that was not a desert operation. It was much more timber. And that ranch was uh, far more compact. Instead of 60,000 acres of deeded land, it was closer to 15,000. You spent a lot more time making sure the fences worked uh, because you had a much smaller ranch. One in the desert, the fences were a second thought. It was a, a much different operation. So I certainly learned how to build fence because uh, we spent huge amounts of time doing that. And that was the ranch uh, that one of my brothers still is on outside of Burns. And then more recently, when I <clears throat> was meeting with you, I had acquired about 100 acres outside of Ontario, which is a farm. And on it, there's a 10 or 12 acres that we use for horses and uh, not yeah. ours. Usually we, yeah. we rent it out and that fence has to be maintained. So I know how to do that. That's why I became a lawyer to avoid build, building fence. And now here I am <laughs> still building fence. So we have it from an inside source that when you used to drive tractor, you would mount a book in the tractor to a gear shift. Is that what it was? So that you could read and, and, further your educational endeavors while you were working? Is this accurate? No, not quite. Uh, <laughs> it, it's accurate when it comes to horseback work because we would go catch the horses at four in the morning, probably uh, before daylight. And then you'd get on a horse and you would ride 
up the same canyon you've been up any number of times. And you'd rope whatever you had to rope or doctor what you had to doctor and move what you had to move. You know, you do your work and you turn around and you ride four hours back. Yeah. And so having a book or something to read was a welcome a diversion from sitting there waiting to get where you're going on your horse. Well, with your proximity to Salem and the work that you have to do here and the size of your district, I would imagine that that book reading uh, was actually probably good practice for the life that you live now. Well, you're assuming that the books I was reading has some merit. <laughs> <laughs> not, I'm not sure that's uh, that's the case. So these were not these were not weighty tomes filled with the law. <laughs> no, these were paperbacks that probably borrowed from some of the men that worked out on the you know on these ranches that probably uh, nowadays people would just laugh because they're pretty uh, you know dime store novel type stuff. So when did you decide you wanted to be an attorney? I was 14, I think. I think we had some of my cousins visiting. One of them is a lawyer. He'd gone to uh, Cornell and then, and then Princeton. Really good guy. You know, I realized somewhere in there that that, that would be a, a valuable thing to do. So if you're, if you're going to protect your interests, it seemed to me the proper thing to do would be know the law. So from the time I was 14 on, it was where I wanted to end up. And then the pivot to politics. When, when did that take place? Well, actually, I, I was in politics starting in high school because I was student body president there and then uh, student body president in college. And then I avoided politics during law school because it was too difficult to be distracted. Mm -hmm. And then upon joining the law firm back in Ontario, uh, Senator Yaturi, Tony Yaturi, was, was our senior partner. And so I joined that law firm because of his involvement in Oregon politics. He had left this building, I think, in 1973 or four. I'm not sure. And I joined his law firm in 1977. 77 was a great year. A wonderful year. Yes, I no, we won't ask why. <laughs> um, so here we are. You were county commissioner for a little while. No. 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 Wikipedia lets us down for the second straight week. <laughs> it had the wrong birthplace of uh, McLean. So you originally ran for the legislature. Was that your first endeavor into politics once you decided? Or did you no. run for local office? No. And back in the... In the early 80s, I did a couple of water cases, and I became very unhappy with the way the water, Oregon Water Resources Commission mm. was operating. So it happened that I had various contacts in Salem, and so I asked to be put on the Water Resource Commission, and, and I was. And I spent eight years on it from 1988 until 1996. After I went off that, decided I would run for the school board. Actually, that's not quite true. I stayed on the St. Peter's School Board for six years in Ontario, a small Catholic school. And then I went on the public school board for three years and then was elected to the house in, in 19 um i think it was 2008 2008 according to wikipedia but yeah. now that they've yeah, already yeah, got right. one thing wrong i, I hesitate to <laughs> yeah, use it as a reference yeah 2005 on the school board and then 2008 into the legislature so 2008 and, and when you and i first talked you know I, I was kind of trying to figure out for myself how to approach this job and your comment to me was that for you, the easiest thing to do was to take something that you were excited about, like water, and take a deep dive into water. I'm the water expert in this building, so that specific task to, to take a deep dive on. Is, is that still, to this day, the way you approach this? Because now we're talking about carbon, and I would submit to you that nobody else has taken the dive that you have taken into carbon. Right, so, so when you're in the minority, you have to make yourself valuable in some fashions. But one value, and everyone would admit it, is that you're constantly seeking folks who know what they're doing in this space because there's so many things to do. Mm -hmm. Such an incredibly challenging job because of, because of the incredible diverse 
set of issues we'd have to deal with. So anyway, if you know something about an area that's important to your district, you'll be called in to almost everything. Because what people learn here is that if you fail to take into account those who know stuff, uh, they will blow you up at some point in the in the process because they just know more. And it's it's embarrassing. You try to go find those people before something bad like that happens. We had opportunity to let people know how little they knew about water uh, on a couple of occasions on the floor of the house. And after that, there, there was really no problem uh, being involved because uh, it's a passionate thing. And when you see somebody making a mistake, it's easy to get pretty focused. But for you, that was something that you self-determined. Nobody came to you and said, hey, Representative Benz, we really need to take a deep dive on water. You said, hey, I'm going to do this. and I'm Well, water is everything in our world, as you know, yeah. so in the eastern part of the state. On the Whitehorse Ranch down by uh, Nevada, my granddad struggled until he found someone to drill two wells. They were wonderful wells. One was 3,000 gallons a minute. The other was 2,500, I think. Oh, wow. And those two wells turned that ranch around because now you had water every year as opposed to every once in a while. We were little kids. We knew all about how valuable that was. And then moving away from the desert and into the mountains, all of a sudden we had water. I mean, that was a huge difference. But no one, you never forget if you if you don't have it. It's so a I, big deal. I took my first foray into water conversation here in Salem this session as I tried to help uh, a gentleman in the northeast part of the state work on a basalt bank project. The comment to me was, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. And I was amazed at how accurate those words were. I thought what we were asking was very simple. I thought it was straightforward. I thought it was so well prepared and laid out that who could possibly argue with this? And then I met them all. And uh, it's it's been fascinating learning experience for me, just who all has an interest in that precious natural resource and, and just how valuable it is. So anyway, let's pivot from that and uh, let's talk about carbon. We are here today. It is Friday here in the Capitol, which means we've got carbon committee that you and I both serve on from one to three this afternoon. We're going to talk about some more amendments. Uh, share us a little bit, though, about the process that you've gone through personally over the last few years, just really taking the dive that you have into carbon policy, carbon world. Right. So, well, thanks for the question. The, the, the water space leads directly into carbon. If you're going to talk about climate change impacts, the first thing you'll mention is is carbon, or, or excuse me, water, and then and then that takes you into uh, CO2 and less water and less certainty and everything else. So anyway, the, the, it was kind of a natural step. A year ago in March, uh, President Courtney asked if I would be interested in being on the Carbon Committee, and I said sure. Um, I told him at the time I thought that he was putting me on the wrong committee because my expertise here in this building is tax. Uh, but he felt he already had people from the Republican side on the tax committee. So he'd rather have me be on carbon. In keeping with my approach to the first thing I did is went to Amazon and I bought, I think, 20 books on carbon. And while I was busy ordering the books, I noticed a seminar in uh, Toronto uh, on carbon. Um, it was actually the next week. And I called uh, Michael Senator Denbro and said, hey, you want to go to Toronto with me and we'll learn about cap and trade because it's a three-day seminar. He said, no, he's already busy doing something else. So I took half of my money and half campaign money, $4,000 in total. And away I went to Toronto and um, it was worth every penny. The seminar was great. I learned an awful lot. And then 
uh, if you're going to be playing in these kind of spaces, you have to appear at every meeting here in Salem. So I started going back and forth. I did that uh, 16 times you know, between March and December. Uh, and I drove over here, I think, five or seven times uh, to attend those carbon meetings. And each time trying to get a little more understanding of that nature of that problem. Uh, you know what? I still don't understand it. It is so difficult. It is really, really difficult. And in the presentation you'll see, the PowerPoint I put together that you'll see this afternoon, is a reflection of, on the one hand, a pretty decent understanding, on the other, still pretty parochial. But I think, too, nationwide, we're seeing a few states talking about this topic right now. Uh, Colorado just passed a bill through their legislature. And the fascinating thing to me was they pegged their carbon emissions to a date of 2005. And, and again, I, I've, I've questioned why we're pegged to a time frame and an emissions level of 1990. And I, I have never to this day gotten a decent answer from anybody other than to say uh, when the 2007 legislature started talking about this, that's the date they decided to peg it towards. Well, that's, that's, that's a, absolutely the right way to question the entire carbon construct, if you will, because the arbitrary nature of those dates is palatable and you should raise that issue as every chance you get. Uh, because those kinds of decisions uh, are going to cost the state billions of dollars. And I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. I'll show that this afternoon in my presentation. Hopefully, we'll have people do a little more thinking and a little less reacting uh, in in that space. Although that hasn't been the case thus far, but we'll, we'll see. So this process, you know, part of the problem is legislators come and go throughout legislative sessions. You know, I'm here today. I was put on this policy committee and yet a year ago i was on energy and environment which gave a window into this policy committee but when i'm told that this conversation has been going for six or seven years i have to be honest with you that doesn't mean much to me i've only been having the conversation now for a year and a half trying to get up to speed and trying to see the value that we're bringing at the cost that we're paying pain and and it's been hard for me to wrap my mind around especially you know the one example and this is from your district which is why i'm bringing it up that just really hits for me so dear to my heart is those 400 jobs at Ashgrove Cement. And if those jobs were to go away, the absolute detrimental effect that would have to that local economy, and then the reality of where that manufacturing process will end up, most likely China, where not only will they, most people will agree that that will result in you know, 400,000 metric tons more of emissions in their manufacturing process, and then the transportation emissions getting it barged over here across a giant ocean and then put onto trucks and deployed to local shops to, to purchase because the demand for concrete is not going to go away. And so it, that one has been so difficult for me. That one example is, is the example that I would point to to anyone that says this is the right policy Right there, you're hurting the local economy. You're putting more emissions into the air. I don't see how we're winning. And I don't see what the gain is to Oregonians, let alone the global environmental impact. Right. Well, <clears throat> that's a, that reflects an understanding that most people don't have of the, of the challenge that the committee you're serving on and I serve on uh, presents. Um, almost fanatical uh, push by those interested in this space. Uh, swallows up an awful lot of rationality, and so you really must work on keeping your temper and and not uh, becoming 
too self-righteous about the, the jobs. Uh, as you know, since that's my district and since, frankly, it's really close to where I live. And I know all of I literally, I know half the people that work at Ashgrove, literally. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it's a extremely uh, personal thing for me to try to keep it going. The good news is the governor's on our side because of her visits there. The better news is Tina Kotek, the speaker, is on our side. That she understands Ashgrove's value. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm thinking we can't have much better uh, help than that at that level. So we, we've done our job in making sure that, that everybody's aware of, of the value of that operation and for all the reasons you just listed. So I do think it's interesting. Uh, when I first got into this, there was a, there was a podcast I found online where new elected congressmen, uh, they were Republicans, got together and they, they started to talk about what it was like to be a newbie in D.C. in the process. And the power that they had or the lack thereof really was their focus and the power dynamics within the building of who has control and who doesn't. And so to that extent, I'm curious about your take on the process in terms of how this bill has moved and how it's morphed over time and where we are now, what the role has been of the minority party, where we're going from here. Hmm. Well, we'll know more Monday because we'll see the, the third major amendment on Monday. So we'll, we'll, we'll see a little more then. I think what what you're seeing play out here is a five-year plan by Senator Dembra to place a carbon pricing policy uh, called cap and trade uh, upon Oregon, getting him to change away to something else that's less complicated and less expensive is very difficult because he spent five years making sure in his mind that cap and trade was the proper device. I disagree with him. I think the carbon tax is the proper device, and the carbon tax would be under my uh, design, revenue neutral, you would affect the same amount of change over 30 years at far less expense and far less complication. It doesn't carry with it, however, some of the top-down, I hate to use the word elitist, so I won't, I'll just say top-down uh, command and control approach to effecting change that I think Senator Dembro, uh, for some reason, likes. He also wants to use the device as an opportunity to reallocate income, it's a Green New Deal approach, which says we'll use climate as an opportunity to attack uh, income inequality. And that's, that's sad because yeah. the, to me, it's, it's mixing apples and elephants. I mean, it's crazy yeah. uh, how climate, if you're going to address it, you, you can't start adding other, other things on. And, and he has done that in this bill, which is very sad. You can tell because 30 pages of the bill talk about how the money is going to be spread out like peanut butter over the state in an attempt to uh, reallocate income. Right. Sad. As far as process, where, where you ask, where is, where is this going to go? Well, I think what's going to happen, uh, the, the votes in the Senate will ultimately determine what's going to happen. I assume it would pass in the House out of hand, notwithstanding its shortcomings. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I think some, I think Karen Power is uh, very, very clever and very focused, and I, I think she'll do what she can to try to make it uh, better. But... Uh, at the end of the day, the people she represents want something that's far more aggressive than yeah. I think is necessary. So the, on the Senate side, it's hard to say whose votes are being held back. I think there's five uh, people on the Democrat side that are not enthused about the bills it's currently crafted, and therefore it's, it's going to change. How much, I can't, can't tell you. But there's some, there's some huge holes in it. I'll try to call those out in 45 minutes. <laughs> so you've served in the House, you've served in the Senate. What are the major differences? What are the similarities? Well, my office is a lot bigger. 
Yeah, no, yeah, that was, was the first thing yeah, he walked yeah, over for the yeah. podcast today, just to let the just, the three of you listening know. And he he came in and he he really felt claustrophobic. It was we had to open the window, we had to give him some fresh air. I should have brought a shoehorn to get into this office. That's why I should have. <laughs> That's one. Here's the other: you do not burn bridges in the Senate because there's too few people. There's 30 people there. That sounds like a lot. It's not. There's only 12 Republicans right now, 11, because Senator Winters is ill. And you find that if you get somebody mad at you, likely, it's very likely that the next committee you're going to be sitting on, you're going to be one of, they'll be one of your co-committee people. And the committees are very small, five people. Right. Some are even less. You really, really, really want to be careful with what kind of position you take. Uh, that's That's a huge deal. The other thing is most of the people in the Senate have been there a long time. Not all, but most. You don't get a lot of what I heard in the 10 years I was in the House. It's called the People's House for a reason. Uh, there's huge turnover in the House. And people that are enthusiastic enough to sacrifice as you have your life basically to come down here kind of want to be heard. And some people kind of want to be heard more than others. And so you get to listen a lot. And uh, in the Senate, that's not the case. It's a much more tightly controlled environment. I'd like to say the conversations are at a more cerebral level, but that's not necessarily the case. We, we th we'd like to think so, but uh, perhaps not. I'm sure it depends on the day. Too. Answer, yes, um, so the other question I have about, the, we're in the super minority position right now. Have you felt that difference? Well, so when I first got here, we were in the super minority. Oh, okay. uh, we, yeah. we just had uh, 23 Republicans in the House when I first got here in 08. In 010, we picked up uh, six seats, I think. And we went to, well, we went to, because we had 24, we went to 30. So we picked up six seats. To me, I, I've always been accustomed to being in the minority, except that one year when we were tied. And they're still basically in the minority, but not quite as bad. The difference has been palatable, though, this time around. There's no doubt about it. And you have to ask yourself, what value do you bring to this space if no one pays any attention to you? You have to kind of figure out how to do other things that build a foundation for the future. After this many years being here, uh, I'm hopeful that some of the things I've learned are, are paying off. I think uh, we will see in the coming weeks if that's true. So one of the things that I found so valuable coming into this building was one, having folks like yourself, uh, like Senator Hansel, like Senator Johnson, who are willing to share significant amount of time uh, and engage with me and kind of get me up to speed on what they were doing. But then secondly, and, and I would might even argue more importantly, I found the right staff. You historically have had some very talented people come through your office. One, I want to know if there's a secret to that so we can help some other people tap into that talent pool. But then two, how have you engaged with those folks? Because I would imagine part of the process of one, finding someone with that's capable, but then giving them access to the process, allowing them to experience some of the things that will build their resume and help them get to the next level. What have you done as a mentor leader of staff to one identification, but then two, how have you helped them grow? Well, the identification part uh, is is pretty challenging because you, if you, unless you hire folks who have been here before, it's it's a learning process for anybody that's new, and it robs them of the ability to be of a, a, a very much help for the first uh, couple of months as they just kind of learn where the 
the bathrooms are basically. I mean, it's really quite the place. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to hire people who have uh, a real interest in being in a space like this, so they want to help learn. And I try to find people who have law degrees if they if they if they've gone to law school. Um, I try to find people who've done well in school. The higher the grades, the better. And that's 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 kind of how I go about it. The I try to find people who are nice because that's a huge value here. As far as leadership go, I think my leadership of my staff has gotten worse over time as I've gotten busier. And so there's what ends up happening when you're busier is you become impatient and short with people who don't know their way around. And there's no reason to expect that they should, but that doesn't, you forget that, uh, you know, fact that nobody's even on which side of the building they're on. I think I've been extraordinarily fortunate in some of the people who've worked for me. I've had some great folks and uh, good folks this time. So yeah, lucky. Have any of them been able to beat you in in the morning? Infrequently, but I have an unfair advantage. The the time zone change in the eastern part of the state warrants that I be here an hour before anybody else. Yeah, so. I, I've called Lynn Finley, you know, knowing that he lives out there in the future as well. Yeah. And some mornings I wake up at 7 and I'm ready to head to work at 7 and I call him up and I ask him what to expect at 8 o'clock because he's already lived it. Oh, yes. And so... It, it, so far, it's not been helpful. No, pro probably not. But uh, I, I still endeavor to find out. Um, so one of my questions, I like I asked this of Mike McLean. I thought it was fun. What is something that people would be surprised to know about you? Well, that question was asked at one of the mixers we had years ago when we first got here. Uh, they I asked everybody to write something down on a piece of paper, fold it up and put it in a hat. And then... We sent uh, and our guess. Leader, uh, and they would read it off, and everybody yeah. had to guess who it was. Mm. I wrote down uh, that my brother-in-law is the recording engineer for the Grateful Dead, which he is. Super cool. Of course, no one believed it, which I thought was surprising. But uh, yeah, he also was the recording engineer for John Fogarty and uh, Huey Lewis and uh, several others. So again, see, we do a little bit of background research outside of Wikipedia. We call some people. So the answer I expected was that you used to host a radio program. That's what I thought was going to come. Yes, well, yes, well, that was uh, that was fun. Nine, nine years. I think, honest, honestly, I think we only missed about eight uh, Wednesdays during those nine years. I think we, we finally got up to nine radio stations that we were on. Wow. Yeah, you can, that shows you how desperate the radio stations <laughs> were. <laughs> but, uh, looking for programming. <laughs> we're looking for something. But sadly, a bunch of those stations uh, went under uh, financially, the radio show came to an end. Again, with your experience now, what was the question that I didn't ask you today that I should have? Well, you should have said uh, what, what my opinion of you as a legislator is. You should have, <laughs> you should have asked that. God, no, God, no. <laughs> no. Uh, is there anybody in this bill? Like, we're used to the lobby coming in, and they call us senator and representative, and you know it's all very formal, and they make us feel so wonderful about who we are. And they refuse, of course, to not let you know that you're their favorite as they're talking to you so long as no one else is around true so can i put you on the spot though like if you're building a team of folks to work with in this building there's some folks that you have worked with that you would gravitate towards and say i want these people on my team well that, that'd be a long list there's a there's a difference depending upon the issue you try to find people who know their way around healthcare, for example which i know nothing about or ways and means which i know nothing about or to whoever it is that's going to be the most knowledgeable in getting to the point on the on the house side it changes so quickly it's amazing i went back and looked at my picture of everybody and to, oh, i think two-thirds of those people are gone 
for real. Right. I mean, it's just amazing the turnover here. And people say, well, I have term limits. You go, no, no, you don't. The people leave. The, the more people that aren't here that know what they're doing, the more they will be taken advantage of by the lobbyists and by the agencies and by the governor and people who do hang around. And so uh, anybody that's enthusiastic about term limits at the state level should come down here and spend some time with us. I've been shocked at the amount of people that have served in this body for quite a while that I've asked, when did you feel like you were effective? And I hear so often, it was about year six or eight that I was here that I finally figured out this process or that element of what I was doing. I've served on Ways and Means for six years before I even knew how to look at the budget. I've been fascinated uh, with that insight. I'm with you. Like I, I would have been someone sitting at home that said term limits, but they were necessary. But then I came in having uh, Mark Johnson just left. Uh, John Huffman just left. Jody Hack just left. Cliff Bentz moved over to the Senate. I mean, you've heard of that guy. And then Newt ran for governor and wasn't coming back. And Sal Esquivel wasn't coming back. Gene Wisnett wasn't coming back. Andy Olson wasn't coming back. Bill Kenimer wasn't coming back. And these are all people that have been in the building for a while. And I thought, oh my gosh, all that intellectual property is leaving. How do we rally around these guys and, and try and suck all this knowledge out of them before they're gone? And I will say, that most of them have been fantastic, still answering the phone when I call and have questions, even though they're, uh, you know, I think Andy Olson, you know, last time sent me a selfie from his convertible down in Arizona in the sunshine. And I do any of time to talk about uh, this ag policy. <laughs> well, Andy was a, all, all those people were great one way or another. So it's sad to see them go. And they'd all been here for a while. People understand uh, that are listening, the, the uh, nature of this endeavor is that it's, it's, it's complicated because it's about the people you're serving with. And if you don't know them, you're going to get nowhere. The better you get to know who you're working with, the more you'll get done. To say that people are just going to come in and not know anybody from Adam and suddenly get a lot done is ridiculous. It doesn't look that way. So yeah. one of the things I really enjoyed after the short session, uh, the speaker sent out a note, I want to say late April, early May, about doing a caucus exchange. And she assigned Democrats and Republicans to be buddies for this exchange. And so I had Alyssa Kenny-Geyer and Diego Hernandez out to the district, and then I was able to then, they waited till after the election, again, assuming that they probably hoped that I would lose, so they wouldn't have to host me. But ultimately in January, I went out and I visited with them and it was a wonderful process. Uh, again, knowing your district is the size of Indiana and their districts are the size of a portion of a large city the fascinating difference between those two. Have you, have you ever engaged in one of those caucus exchanges? Would you be interested if you haven't? Well, you mentioned earlier that the governor and the speaker had an interest in Ashgrove. Have they visited the, the plant? Was that something that you coordinated? Is that something you arranged? Some years ago, like four, uh, I had been talking to Tina about coming out. And one, and she, one day she called and said, hey, I would like to visit. I go, sure, how, how many hours will you be here? She'll go, I'll be there three days. So she came out and spent three days and I took her, I, we arranged, I arranged uh, her visits. I had a different visit for her every hour uh, during, for three days and, and took her all over the place. It was great fun. And when we had a wonderful visit in Baker City with a, a huge group, um, we went to Ashgrove and uh, we went to Huntington and we went to Nyssa and we went, uh, we didn't make it all the way to Burns because that's too far a drive. Uh, and she really did enjoy it. And I think she really did learn a lot. And, and, um, it was a hugely valuable thing for that area. And it was the first time anybody had, had done that. With a, They hadn't had a Speaker of the House in that space for ever, as near as anybody could tell. Yeah. 
And then when the, the snowmageddon happened, we had that four feet of snow that was un, unscripted. Uh, the governor uh, flew Ferrioli and I out uh, in her uh, National Guard jet. Was it a jet? A prop. Can't remember. A uh, prop, I think. And we landed in Ontario. We crawled onto a big uh, Black Hawk helicopter and flew up and down the valley, uh, Treasure Valley, looking at the flooding and the immense amounts of snow. She had a, a great opportunity to, to see that area. It was very nice of her to come out. It was, um, it was really fun. And, and then she came out again just a few weeks ago, months ago, and, and visited Ash Grove herself. I think we've, we had two other occasions when the governor visited. So we've had a lot of opportunity. Yeah. To, to showcase the challenges that that little valley faces. Right. And I will say, you know, she came out this summer. We had the wildfires in, in our district, and she came out, one, to see what was happening while it was going on, and then, two, she came out afterwards, and, and we were able to coordinate a meeting and raise some awareness on some things that were happening. And so uh, really do appreciate when those more senior and statewide elected officials come out and visit and engage with Eastern Oregon. It's so valuable because it is so hard for folks from our district to get here. Well, I think the people in Malheur County or Baker County or Harney County, Grant County, all of them, uh, Wasco County, the, it's, it's highly unusual to see a governor or a speaker the further east you go. It's just there's no reason to be there, at least with the Dalles and with the Hood River and with Madras and Bend. You're going to have those leaders there more often because it's more likely they would actually be there for other reasons. But no, it's been very, very productive to have, have them come over that far. Well, thank yeah. you for all that you do. I, I don't believe anybody can argue that you are not the hardest working person here or that you don't read more than everybody else. So thank you for the work you do as my senator. I appreciate you. And thank you again for taking the time because I know your time is valuable. I appreciate all the effort and you being here today as our guest. And thank you, the listeners, for coming back by again. Main Street Politics, remember, if you need to get a hold of us here in the office, 503-986-1459, or our district office is 541-719-8745.